Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today without my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer, who has had to take some time off as we come into Christmas. That's unfortunate, as I think today is the 300th episode we've ever recorded for Gripped, and I was hoping to have a, a bit of a chat with him about the, the show itself, and maybe do a little bit of a, a retrospective. But we can do that when he gets back, and we will just go ahead as uh, as per normal, I suppose. So, since it's just me today, because Michael is is doing his own thing, or unconscious, one of those two options, we'll get through this fairly quick. So, what I wanted to talk about today, there is a CSO study, which is looking at the amount of people who believe they see things on the internet which are untrue or doubtful. We're going to talk about that number, and frankly, how we get those numbers up, because they're not where they should be. Then we're going to have a bit of a chat about the department and its amnesty and more specifically what it is briefing people on versus what they actually have on hand. I'm afraid there has been an epidemic of memory loss amongst department officials and NGOs advising the department on this issue. It It is tragic. Some of these people are quite young, but I only hope that with some form of assisted living, they will be able to continue working for these organizations into the future. And then we're going to talk about Greenpeace. More specifically, Greenpeace's new anti-nuclear campaign, and I'm going to give a bit of an explanation of why it is legitimate to refer to Greenpeace as child murderers. Well, child manslaughters? Negligent homicide? Not friends of your children, anyway. Well, listeners don't generally live in the Philippines or Africa, so Greenpeace probably have no thoughts on your children. But uh, if any listeners are in there, you know what I'm talking about. So we'll get into that. So the start with... I just wanted to touch on something very quickly. There was a new survey by the CSO. It's called the ICT Household Survey. And basically, its purpose is to collect data on how Irish households and individuals use uh, internet, basically, and general technological skills. And I thought it was a particularly interesting survey because it came out with a result that I was kind of surprised by. And the result was that somewhere in the region of 60% of people see online information that they consider to be untrue or doubtful. And I think that statistic is a bit of a problem because it means that 40% of the country have no idea what they're doing. Everyone sees online information which is untrue or doubtful. Everyone sees and hears information that is untrue or doubtful. 100% of people in the general course of their life will see information that is untrue or doubtful. So for 40% of people to think that nothing they have seen is potentially untrue or doubtful, I think is deeply problematic. We've got to get those numbers up. Also, interestingly enough, the survey asked, untrue or doubtful? Here is the uh, Irish Independence headline on the story they did. Over 60% of internet users saw online content they considered to be untrue. That's not what the survey asked. It asked, did you see information you thought was untrue or doubtful? There was no breakdown of untrue or doubtful in it. It was one question. So the independence headline on a piece about online information being untrue is in itself untrue. And this is why everyone sees information that they should consider to be doubtful. Anything written, particularly by a paper or any media source, including me, should be considered to be untrue or doubtful unless otherwise verified. And sometimes it's stuff like this, where they probably just didn't think the doubtful was important, but in removing it, they've actually materially changed the results. Now, that was one of the Independence articles. 
there was another Independence article by Adrian Weckler. And that was also wrong, but that was wrong in a different way. So the headline is majority seeing untrue or doubtful information online, CSO says. Perfectly accurate. The first paragraph is new figures from the CSO say that over 60% of us see online information on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, which we consider untrue or doubtful. That's not quite right. Because the actual question that the CSO asked was, have you seen information or content that you considered untrue or doubtful on, and it does ask about Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, but it also says, or doubtful on internet news sites. So we have two reports from the Independent on this, both of which are either incomplete or now false. I would argue that the first article through its headline is false, and Adrian Weckler's article is arguably false now, but more incomplete. But it is unfair or untrue to say that 60% of users said that they saw untrue or doubtful information only on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And it's a particularly interesting removal for a newspaper which has a very strong online presence to make. I just thought it was interesting more than anything else. I'm not saying there was anything behind it. Anytime you're writing about misinformation or about uh, someone lying, it's a bad story to be wrong on or to make any sort of mistake on, and you really don't want to. But uh, it is what it is. I started saying it is what it is a lot. I'm not sure why. I believe in the last show we were talking about the government's plans to introduce an amnesty for either illegal immigrants or undocumented migrants, as your political views may prefer. And if I recall correctly, and I, I may be wrong on this because I've talked about this issue so much, I was saying that the figures given out by the government didn't look like they could stand up, that there was didn't look like there was anything behind them at all. And the government had put out a press release saying that studies supported the figure. Well, I looked into that a bit more. I tried to talk to the department. I tried to talk to the people they say uh, put forward the figure of 17,000. Um, and no one could seem to give me a very good answer of exactly how it was arrived at. For those who, who aren't aware of this issue, the government is in January beginning an amnesty uh, for undocumented migrants who have meet certain criteria, like having been here four years and having a generally good character. As part of that, they've been briefing media that there are up to 17,000 undocumented migrants in the country. Those figures come from the Migrant Rights Centre of Ireland. It's always been rather unclear exactly how they got to the figure of 17,000, because in 2018, they were saying it was in the region of 26,000. There have been other bits of research that have come to significantly higher figures. But the department has been... The department has been briefing journalists and other people who've reached out to them that the 17,000 figure is supported and has been verified for quite a time. But they put out a press release last week where they were silly enough to write it down. And so since they had finally written it down, I was able to go to the department and say, those studies you're talking about, what were their names? And you know what? The department couldn't tell me the names of the studies. Couldn't describe what was in the studies, actually, just that there were certainly studies. And eventually they put me on to the Migrants' Rights Centre of Ireland, who by that point I'd already talked to because I knew that was where the figures were, uh, had come from originally. Now the Migrants' Rights Centre of Ireland has never responded to a question I put to them on this issue. And I had an interest in this issue for a while, not because I terribly care about the issue of immigration, it's never been one of my issues, but because I was pretty sure in this case that the department 
the government is rather deliberately avoiding figuring out what that number is on the assumption that this may go wrong and it's better not to know than it is to know, which is a bit problematic as they're going to introduce legislation which will have life-changing impact on tens of thousands of people by any measure and they don't really have any idea of uh, exactly how far-reaching what they want to do is. I discovered a, a clever workaround to MRCI not answering any of my questions. The last time they had failed to answer any of my questions, I simply found as many of the private phone numbers of their staff as I could, and I played the old journalistic game of if you call enough people's private numbers, eventually someone is going to pick up. So I ended up talking to two of MRCI's staff, and tragically, given that they were both quite young people, neither could remember the name of the study in which the figure of 17,000 had originally been arrived at. Nor did they mention that they had done multiple studies that had come to that conclusion, which is what the department ended up eventually claiming to me when I pointed out that they had said studies, plural. So even if MRCI had done a study, they still wouldn't have gotten the plural part. So they ended up saying that MRCI had done multiple studies, proving the 17,000 figure. I don't see any reason why that would be the case. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that you would prove a figure was correct once, and then within the space of maybe a year, go back and prove it again and get exactly the same figure. Highly unlikely. Someone, I think, is not being entirely honest here. So we have a situation where the department is briefing people, I would say falsely. I don't think there are multiple studies that say this. Arguably, the department is deliberately lying to the media by saying so. And several parts of the media were kind enough to take the point in the department's press release that multiple studies showed this figure to be uh, the most likely and reprint it without noting it came from the department thereby taking an unsupportive claim whose entire purpose seems to be to support the policy that the government is introducing and to separate it from the government and present it merely as fact. And that, by the way, is really the only reason that you lie to journalists about things like this, because you want them to take that information to the public so you don't have to lie to the public individually, because that's very inefficient. I would generally hesitate to say that anyone is lying about something, because that's a statement of intent, and they have to know they're wrong to do it. However, I don't really see any way that the department would not know that the studies aren't there to back this up, given that they would have done a basic analysis of it. If you go to someone and say, oh, well, we've got studies, and then can't answer the follow-on question, what studies, you're probably aware of that. Like, a competent press officer is going to ask that question when they're told to brief people on that. But it is what it is. It's a, um, it's a standard old thing. The Green Party wants it. The government will give it to them. I specifically wrote the gripped story to make the note that it wasn't just that the department was lying about this or that it was misleading people, but that it was directly misleading or lying to journalists on the assumption that some of the people who took this information and presented it to the public as true might then be annoyed enough to go back and ask the government what the hell is happening here. That may or may not happen. The story may instead be totally ignored or if we give the department enough time, I'm sure they can dig up some studies. I mean, they weren't able to do it in the time given to them, and I gave them a considerable amount of time. But we will see where that goes. I just wanted to raise that up. There was another, in the last show, we were also talking about some of the figures that Tony Houlihan had given out. And he had been saying that seven people a day were dying. And it looked like he was taking the notifications of death, rather than looking at how many people actually died over a set period 
and I'll explain what that difference is in a second, just in case listeners haven't heard the last show. I have yet to receive a response from either the HSA or the Department of Health on that question. I have now sent the question to them two or three times. I don't think the Department of Health or the HSE have responded to a press query I've sent in since I reported the Kinzen stories. I will check that after this recording. So if that statement makes it into what you hear, I have checked and they absolutely haven't gotten back to me since the Kinzen thing. That's fair enough. They've no obligation to do so. It does seem a little bit petty, but it was deeply embarrassing for them, so I can understand where they're coming from. On the matter of debt notifications versus the actual number of people who died over a week. The difference is that when you are when you die of anything, but particularly of COVID, your death is notified to the appropriate authorities. And the problem there is that there can be quite a significant delay between the time you die and when that death is actually notified. And also you can see clustering because there can be certain things that cause a backlog across multiple parts of the country. And so what happens is you get increased deaths at certain points and certain days. And we have seen delays in notification of well over a month, two, three months. It's quite difficult to tell exactly how long the delay is because the HSE is not very good at releasing anything really, but definitely stats on things like that. So the problem is if you use the notifications, you're never quite sure where those people died. So we saw this during code where they come out and You'd have something like 10 people died this day, 10 people died this day, 140 people died this day. And when you look into it, it's a notification and it could be deaths over the past quarter of the year. So I think the Houlihan, when he wrote to government, used debt notifications, not the actual broken down deaths during a particular period, which would be an interesting approach because if you do that, you would, you would kind of know that you're inflating the figures. But as I said, I've received no response on that. I will keep chasing it up, and hopefully uh, we will get something from them. And we'll get a bit of a story on it, but we will see where we go with that. I'm not sure if this will make it into the Irish news, but one of the organisations I most dislike has begun a new campaign. And that organisation is Greenpeace. I immensely dislike Greenpeace. I'm going to say that before we get into this, just... I have, like, I have a dog in this fight. Uh, I, I dislike them for two reasons, both of which we're going to touch on here. One, Greenpeace are one of the most prominent anti-nuclear campaign groups in the world. And I think that their campaigning against nuclear power put us into a situation where we are decades behind where we should have been. And had Greenpeace simply not existed, or had it taken a policy of supporting nuclear power, by this point, we would not have many of the current issues we have. But that's an ideological difference that I can kind of uh, work with. That's what they're protesting against at the minute, by the way. They have a, they built a giant Tyrannosaurus, which has a radioactive symbol on it. It looks like a child's paper mache attempt, except three meters tall. What they're protesting against is they've they've gone outside uh, the European Commission and European Council in Brussels. They don't want nuclear energy classed as a sustainable fuel. Uh, The slogan is, let gas and nuclear go extinct. They are giving their spokesperson's name in this press release as a Taxonosaurus Rex. Even a dinosaur like me can see that extending the life of fossil fuel and nuclear energy by giving them a green label 
is like crashing a meteorite into the European Green Deal. And basically, Greenpeace's argument is, is nuclear energy is not green. That nuclear industry still has no solution for the ever-growing mountain of radioactive waste, and that they should be fully excluded, uh, this, they're also, they have an issue with gas as well, uh, from any EU sustainable investment guidelines. This is not new. new uh, Greenpeace have been against nuclear for decades, and they were never going to like this. The second reason I don't like Greenpeace, and this I think is actually the important one, is because of some of their anti-GMO campaigning. Some of it, I think, was perfectly legitimate. But there was also the golden rice issue. Now, for those who aren't aware of this, golden rice was a genetically modified food, although I believe they prefer the term biofortified, which was amended to have a higher than usual level of vitamin A in it. Now, vitamin A deficiency is not something you really see very much in most of the countries which I know our listeners are in. It is a very big problem in the developing world. It affects millions of people, particularly children, and it kills thousands of people a day. As a response to that, this plant was developed. And the idea was that this plant could be given to small farmers for free and that the increased level of vitamin A in it would then improve everyone's lives. And Greenpeace were not about to let that fucking happen. So Greenpeace have... Now, this was about 2002 this sort of started to happen. Greenpeace went against this, and they went against this heavy. They have lobbied governments not to accept shipments of golden rice. They have lobbied for tighter regulation of golden rice. They have said things about golden rice that were clearly and totally bullshit. They've made claims about the nutritional content of golden rice at times when that information wasn't even available. They're just saying things about this. They have been incredibly vocal on it, and they have largely succeeded. Now, it wasn't just Greenpeace. There was an international treaty that was passed. It was the Cartagena Protocol on Biosafety. And that made a lot of the uh, research and trade in golden rice very, very difficult. If you've ever heard anyone talking at EU level about GMO and talking about the precautionary principle, they're probably talking about the Cartagena Protocol, which uh, contains a principle 15, I think. So basically principle 15 states that if a product... Uh, if a biotech product possesses a um, or poses a risk to human health or the environment, it should be restricted and heavily controlled. And it takes the general line that it's not that we need to show what you're doing is dangerous. You need to show us that it absolutely isn't. And Greenpeace were very happy with that. I believe they lobbied for that. They wanted the strictest regulations possible. The end result of that is that golden rice has never really taken off. The only people really saying, by the way, that golden rice doesn't work are Greenpeace and some of the other environmental groups. The research on it indicates that, yes, it does work, and it would help in these areas. And by help, I mean it would save millions of lives and um, stop children going blind. And they're, they're they're still actually campaigning against golden rice right now. Uh, If you go onto their site, you will find very recent things about it. And basically what happens is anytime it looks like a country might accept golden rice, Greenpeace goes on the offensive. And they start saying 
It will um, impoverish farmers. It'll destroy the climate. It is a form of pollution. It can't be trusted. It'll kill the indigenous wildlife. Things that they have no evidence of. Greenpeace actually on GMO generally is pretty terrible. Occasionally they'll do something legitimate. But my problem is not that they're against it. My problem is that they are against it. And they either don't know what they're talking about. Or they are deliberately trying to scare the shit out of people. And in a lot of developing countries that worked. So yeah I must. I, I suppose we should really applaud Greenpeace. Because it's going to take a lot of time to fight against something like that for nearly two decades. And they still found the time to complain about nuclear yet again. Greenpeace have been called out on this, by the way. There was a letter from Nobel laureates in, I think, 2016, which got somewhere in the region of 40 or 50% of living Nobel laureates uh, calling them out and saying that this, this is ridiculous. At the time this letter was signed, the estimate was that about 40% of children under five years old in the developing world suffered from vitamin A deficiency. So that can go to blindness, it can lead to death, is particularly dangerous if you pick up another infection because it will increase the risk of a, um, sorry, if you you pick up a sickness or infection, because it will increase the risk of um, a negative outcome up to death from that. So we're not talking about a small thing. Arguably, Greenpeace have been a pivotal part in allowing the preventable death of millions of children. And that just doesn't sit right with me. So we had all of these Nobel laureates come out. I'll link to the letter below. And they were pretty blunt with um, with uh, Greenpeace. A lot of them did media around this as well. And they pretty explicitly said... That Greenpeace was against science, that it was actively hurting children. And in particular, some of the media around it called out Greenpeace's uh, strategy here, which is to introduce every possible roadblock you can, make it as difficult as possible for this to get into countries, spread as much wrong information as, about it as you can, and then to tell people that the fact it's having trouble being picked up means that it's not workable, that it doesn't do anything. There was an interesting note point made by a guy called Richard Roberts that he had signed this letter to Greenpeace. One of the things he argued when he was doing the media promoting that letter was that Greenpeace are specifically against golden rice, not because it's terrible, but because it's good. Greenpeace are dedicated to arguing against the use of GMO crops. And there are other types of GMO crops which are far scarier or can be presented as being far scarier but golden rice if it does what people think it would do would be one of the single largest improvements in the life of people in those regions it is generally a good thing when your children don't go blind and die and so his argument was that greenpeace wants to stop this because if golden rice succeeded and that became the popular view of GMO crops. The GMO crops are not terrifying, but rather a thing that could massively improve people's lives uh, in the worst situations. Well, that would make it harder to fight against GMO crops more generally. And so the Golden Rice Initiative needs to die. Just needs to be taken out because it has the potential to change public perception. Now, if that were true, that would be an amazingly cynical decision on the path of green on the part of Greenpeace. 
to willfully allow the death of potentially millions of children because you thought that if those children didn't die, well, the people you don't like might look better because they stopped them from doing it. Anyway, it looks like Greenpeace have largely succeeded in their work. Golden Rice, two decades on, is nowhere near where people thought it would be. I think people, I would imagine the scientists involved assumed that once they got this thing working, and they were able to go, oh, look, there's a massive improvement in um, in quality of life here. It could really help in the fight against you know death and disease and misery. Probably assumed when they got that part done that giving it to people for free would be the easy part. But no. On environmental groups and nuclear energy, I did actually hear an interesting interview, which I will link below, and is from someone who I think I will try and get in in the new year. And it's a guy called James... Uh, Edward Hansen. Now Hansen is a um, he's the director of climate science uh, at Columbia University's Earth Institute. So serious academic on the uh, issue of climate science. He was big in promoting the issue of um, the public awareness of uh, man-made human um, man-made climate change. But he did a recent interview where he was asked about environmental groups and nuclear energy because he was giving his opinion that due to the requirements to have a solid baseload on an energy uh, grid, nuclear was really the only way that made sense. And he was saying is that he has had the opportunity to speak with the heads of the biggest environmental groups and that almost all of them are getting donations that they would lose if they came out for nuclear power because those donations either come from the fossil fuel industry, which is interesting in and of itself, or they come from older rich people who grew up during a time when being anti-nuclear power was just a thing, and they've continued that through their lives. So there may be substantial conflicts of interest there. But it, it's an interesting uh, interview, and I, I think it's well worth reading, or it's well worth um, watching if you're into that sort of thing. I think I will leave it at that. Hopefully Michael will be back for Friday. I'm unsure of that. Uh, but, uh, well, we live in hope. All the best.